Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Welcome to the Theater Podcast, intimate personal conversations with theater's biggest names. This episode is with Elizabeth Stanley, who is taking on the lead role in Jagged Little Pill, which just opened on Broadway. This show is intense, people. It is so good. You have to go see it. It's a modern show with 25-year-old music. The soundtrack is from Alanis Morissette's Jagged Little Pill album that came out in the 90s, of course. And the songs have been reworked to to be modernized, and it is just 100% relevant to society today. It gets deep, it gets heavy, it gets very, very sensitive and talks about topics that we all need to start really talking about. Uh, Director Diane Paulus, Elizabeth was saying that Diane Paulus gave everyone an assignment to research as rehearsals began and allowed everyone to have a safe space to explore sensitive topics you know, and talk about things in a way that that everyone could feel comfortable with. And the show has an intimacy director, Claire Warden, who was also intimacy director for Slave Play. And this is a, a new position that I think more and more shows are going to start having and very well needed because uh, some of the choreography and the blocking, it's all very, very explicit. And just to make the real-life actors comfortable with doing these things and giving them a space to say what they are willing to do, uh, you know, Claire facilitates this kind of stuff. And the conversation is just incredible. Elizabeth's character itself is, it goes to a deep, dark place every night. She was saying that she had to develop a ritual to become Elizabeth, to become herself again after going deep into the psyche of her character, Mary Jane. She goes off stage and she like, shakes it out literally and and everybody knows just to leave her alone for a few minutes while she just comes back to normal because otherwise if she takes any of that home with her like it could really affect her so i applaud her for being able to give herself to this character every night and it's just incredible to watch so i hope you all enjoy the conversation please follow me on instagram and twitter at theater underscore podcast please tell your friend about the podcast leave a rating leave a review Visit me online at ttp.fm. And now everyone, please enjoy this episode with Elizabeth Stanley. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed, also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. She made her Broadway debut in the 2006 revival of Company and has also starred in Broadway in Crybaby, Million Dollar Quartet, and On the Town. She was in the 2009 tour of Xanadu, the 2015 tour of the Bridges of Madison County, in addition to numerous TV credits, such as Fringe, which was one of my personal favorites, (laughs) All My Children, The Affair, and The Get Down. Now on stage, playing the leading role of Mary Jane Healy in Broadway's Jagged Little Pill, Elizabeth Stanley, welcome to the theater podcast. Hey, How you doing? I'm great. You found the place. I did. (laughs) Google Maps, thank you. Um, So where we start normally on this podcast is with with your childhood. Let's go back to the beginning. Little Elizabeth. Where were you born? Uh, I was born in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Iowa? Yeah. 
I think this is the first that, of having someone oh, from really? Iowa on the podcast. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm Midwestern through and through. Then we moved a couple times uh, during my childhood, and we ended up in Illinois by the time I was in middle school. But like the sticks, not close to anything. Like the closest big city is St. Louis, Missouri, and that's like three hours away. So, so okay, St. Louis, I'm trying to picture. All right, so you were east of St. Louis? Okay. I guess St. Louis has a lot of theater. There, there's a conservatory in St. Louis, yeah? Sure. Is it there? Mm, I don't know. <laughs> I have to look this up. St. Louis has a lot happening, the, but we didn't go there very often because it was like a three-hour drive, you know? So, Well, then where did the love for theater come from? Where, what were your parents so, like? So my parents were amazing. Um, they originally were both teachers, and so they had a love for education and, and knew a thing or two about childhood psychology, I think, mm-hmm. which is also so lucky as a kid of those people. Um, my dad eventually became a businessman, but... Um, but my mom was super keen to like anything that she saw her kids being interested in was like, okay, let's foster that. Um, so the town that I lived in for most of my like formative years was called Camp Point, Illinois. It's about a thousand people, but it's 30 miles That's from a tiny town. It's tiny, just corn and cows. Uh, but it's like 30 miles from a slightly bigger town called Quincy, Illinois, which mm-hmm. actually has a really good, like, thriving arts program. So that's where I did all of my lessons in community theater and the like. Well, where lessons in community theater, though, but what got you into that? Where did you start saying, oh, I'm going to go audition for, you know, that play of whatever it is? It was kind of a slow burn. I mean— I I always loved music, so that was kind of my way in. Like, I started taking piano lessons when I was six Mm -hmm. and then um, loved singing and did stuff at church and whatever. And then um, I think some of my friends were, like, auditioning for a play at the community theater, like a children's theater thing. And Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, yeah, that'd be cool. And I think knowing that we could carpool the, you know, the 30-mile drive made it more enticing to my family. So... Mm -hmm. (laughs) So we did, and then I through that circle, then I met like my the people who became my voice teachers in my like high school years. How old were you when you first auditioned? Do you remember? Uh, like uh, twelve or thirteen, probably. Okay, so early early teens. It yeah. wasn't it wasn't like you, you do it basically as a social activity. To yeah, hang out with your friends. Yeah, and your parents are like, we support you. Get out of the house. It's yeah, right, we're right, cool. right. We're cool. Right. Yeah, it was just sort of like, well, we'll see what this is. Yeah, my parents were supportive but not pushy. Right. Um. Because, I mean, I think, like, pushing your kids into the arts is, like, scary, you know? Like, they're very sensible people, so I think I feel lucky that they continued to support me pursuing the arts. Because I think that's a scary thing for parents who are not artists themselves to be like, sure, go to school and study this thing that probably you'll never make money doing is what, you know, most people think. Right. Well, then, okay, um, when— when did you figure out you could sing, though? Because or was was a community theater always singing, or were there plays? Or I mean, community uh, theater, I guess, is a lot of singing. It was a little bit of both. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mostly did musicals, and I was in like a little show choir for kids called Stage Kids, and uh, so there was singing involved most of the time, and that was my initial love. I think like. That's it, even what I went to college for was to study vocal performance because mm-hmm. I thought, oh, I'm going to be an opera singer. Like that was like a, my high school voice teacher 
had had a, an opera career. And so like that was, she was the only professional artist that I really knew. And so I was like, oh, that's the prototype. Like I can copy her life and I'll mm-hmm. do that. Um, so my like true love for being an actress didn't really come until, <laughs> didn't really come until later, like after college even. I think that like, even in college, I because I was a voice major, the acting classes I took were not with theater majors. They were just like with the gen ed population who could take a theater credit to like check off some kind of speech, you know, credit. Um, And so I kind of, it just like, I liked it, but I didn't get it. Right. And it wasn't until I took acting classes, like after I lived in New York for a while that I was studying the same things that I learned in college. And I finally was like, oh, this makes sense now. And I love it. Also, you were already out of college before you decided that you wanted to like act, act versus just be a concert kind of singer? No, I mean, I was always pursuing music theater, but I think, like, I would have been very afraid to just do a play. Oh, really? Yeah. Because it's, oh, because it was just relying so much on just being vulnerable and being open. I mean, yeah. I think I just, like, didn't, I was intimidated by it because I hadn't auditioned for straight plays in college. Mm. Um, I'd only done plays, like, in my kid days, you know, at my community theater. And so I think... The idea of like, I underestimated, I think, that you have to really be an actress to be able to do musicals because so many people tell us that you're not, you know? So I think uh, it was really empowering for me to study acting, to take, you know, acting class once I was in the city. Was there ever a point in high school or middle school, I guess before you decided to go to college for voice, was there ever a point when you didn't know what to do when you were like, I'm going to be an economics uh, an economics major or... I'll do computer science, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think there were a lot of different things. That I, like, randomly, I was like, maybe I'll be a dentist. That seems kind of interesting. Oh, randomly? <laughs> so random, oh, right? I think— That's weird. S- side note, we're going to oh, talk about dentistry for a second. I think looking in people's mouths all day is disgusting. Yeah, right. I know. I don't know why I thought that was fine. I don't—I mean, <laughs> power to you, dentist. All the dentists out there— Thank you. —who are listening to this right now. Hey, thank you. Thank, thank you, you for your <laughs> for, you. for your profession. Your health starts there. Yes, yes. Yeah. I've only recently started—recently in my adult years. Oh, congrats. Yeah. That's really exciting. I know. It's not—what is? What are those quip ads? It's not how—it's not what you floss, it's that you floss. Oh. Or it's not how you—whatever. It's not what you find in there, it's that you found it. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's not yesterday's meal, it's that you don't—it's <laughs> you fully digested it. So Jack Little Pill just opened December 2019, a couple weeks ago, and it is just, it's phenomenal. I post about it on, on my Instagram, my stories, whatever, and like those posts are are just, they get so much traction compared to all the other stuff that I oh, post wow. about. And there's such a fervent fan base for this show. And it it's surprising to me how, how popular it is um, right at opening, which we'll get to in a bit. But in a good way, surprisingly in a good way. And, um, but I want to know, take me back to, to the beginning of, like, how did you get involved? When was the, when, what year was the first audition or the first time you got a script in your hands? Yeah, uh, it was two years ago, uh, almost exactly this time. It was just before, the first lab that we did was just before Thanksgiving. Uh, and I got the audition I was headed to my brother and sister-in-laws in Chicago who were having a baby shower and a housewarming and like the next day. And so they're like, this is a self-tape. It's due in a few days, but I had to do it the day I got it because I was leaving town. So I was like, well, okay. Right. Um, yeah, so that was really it. I mean, like 
it's so strange. You know, some auditions you you go in five or six times and, mm-hmm. you know, the stakes get higher and higher. And this was a self-tape that I did in my spare bedroom and there you have it. Um, yeah, so it was kind of bizarre in that way. Okay, so <laughs> I'm, I'm playing out the timeline in my mind. So you had the 2015 tour and then you got this audition in 2017 and then it's been two years of workshopping it. That's right. Right. Mm-hmm. And it opened in Cambridge at the ART last year. Yeah. So, okay. Technically a year and a half ago now. year and a half ago. Yeah. Right. And, and how long, I don't, I don't remember, how long between the, the ART run, out-of-town run, and this one? Yeah, like a year and a half, because that was in the summertime. So it wasn't the summer of 2019, but the summer of 2018. Okay. Okay, so that was a while back. But when you first... Well, I want to get into the differences, right? Because everything changes between between the runs. Yeah. But when you first got this script, when yeah. you were first like, okay, cool, I got this audition, and you open it, and you're like, right. an Alanis Morissette musical. I was suspicious. I don't know, just because, you know, Alanis's music is so iconic and not something that in my mind was a direct match for Broadway. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I am not a giant fan of the jukebox musical to begin with. So I was sort of like, hmm, okay, well, we'll see. I'll put myself, you know, record it and whatever. Like, <laughs> um, and so it was kind of great that I think, you know, then I got it and then I, I entered the lab with the same sort of attitude, like with total curiosity, like, cool, we'll see what this is. I'm so jazzed to be in the room with these people. Like, mm-hmm. I have been wanting to work with Diane Paulus and Sidi Labrishikari. I didn't know before that, but he's the choreographer and he's insanely amazing. Um, and Tom Kitt and Brian Perry and obviously Alanis. You know, so it was like a dream team of people in Diablo Cody. So that is what really like enticed me. Well, for me, when I first heard, oh, there's a, there's a Alanis Morissette musical on, you know, on a Broadway trajectory, I was like, I, I questioned, my eyebrow went up mm-hmm. and it said, oh, and a musical about Alanis Morissette. Mm. And I think maybe that's what a lot of people originally thought. But I, I want to, I want to read something I found online about the show. It says, the Healy's, which is your fictional family. It's Indeed. not a show about Alanis Morissette not at, at all. all. The Healy's appear to be a picture-perfect suburban family, but when the cracks beneath the surface begin to show, they must choose between maintaining the veneer or defiantly facing truths about themselves and the world around them. It's an original story. That's right. And, and that, I think, is... Well, it's a, it's a deep original story, first of all, and we're going to get into this. Great. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> I guess do you do you have any insight into the process of where the concept came from? Like who was it that said, I'm gonna make a musical about A, B, and C, but I wanna set it to the soundtrack of this album that somehow changed my life or that means something to me? I think the story goes, and I could be wrong, but uh one of our lead producers, Vivek Tawari, is I think it was his uh brainchild mm-hmm. that this album would make an amazing story or musical. Um, and so I think he first took it to Alanis and and it sort of kicked around. And um, But I don't think it was until uh, they brought on Tom Kitt and then Tom Kitt reached out to Diablo Cody. Mm-hmm. 
And so it was really, I think, Diablo's brainchild of what the story has become. And I know that she said, for her, it, it started with the song Mary Jane. Like that was like so clear to her. She was like, I knew that this was a story about a woman named Mary Jane who was obsessed with keeping up appearances. So Diablo Cody, for those who don't know, won an Oscar for winning the screenplay, uh, writing the screenplay for Juno. Yeah. Which was a great, a great movie as well. Is this, and I, I should know this, is this her first Broadway yeah. book that she's written? Yeah. Wow. I know, right? Right out of the gate. Way to go. Way to nail that. <laughs> yeah. But you know, she's so, I mean, I can't say enough great things about her. She's just like the coolest human being. Um, but so humble too. There were so many times throughout the process where she was like, I don't know, I've never written for Broadway. So like, yeah, okay, totally. If, oh, I need to change that. I get it. Okay. You know, because she could have really had an ego and yeah. been like, I'm an award-winning screenwriter, so Broadway, whatever, you know? But she was so not like that. She was so game for the challenge of the newness of this. Well, okay. So then your producer, did he reach out to Alanis or did he know Alanis already? Like when was she brought in? Um, I, I mean, I think... I. It seems to me from the get-go, yeah, I, that's what my understanding is that he reached out to her and sort of like we're interested in doing this. And and Alanis, I think my understanding is that her, she was intrigued because I think she's the kind of artist who's like into having something be deepened and further mm-hmm. interpreted, but she was not interested in having it be about her. Right. And she really wanted to make sure that the songs were saying something beyond what had already, beyond what they had already said, you know? So I think to have them just be a version of the music video on stage or, Mm -hmm. you know, I I think something like that she wouldn't have been interested in, but I think having the songs be reinterpreted and made into this story, I think seems like she was really down. Well, okay. So, so I I was reading online, I was reading um, an article about um, that she sort of, Made this about modern day, or the 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 writing this the book is about modern day Atlantis versus you know the the album when it came out in ninety five when I was personally fourteen yeah. <laughs> was about you know Atlantis twenty five years ago yeah I mean she was so young when she wrote that album right it's incredible and now she's a mom and then Diablo is a mom yeah and uh, and Diane's a mom mm-hmm. and so the three of them three powerhouse women mm-hmm. writing this story. And then, of course, yeah, it makes sense to me now that it has to center around this mom telling the story about some really deep shit. Yeah. So let's get into some deep shit. A deep dive. <laughs> um, well, I guess, first of all, let me, before I ask, before I get there, let me ask one more question. Is, were you familiar, how familiar were you with the original uh, album back in 95? Or um, in that time frame? I loved the album. I did not personally own it. Um, I was on a tight budget, and so I didn't own very many CDs. Um, it wasn't that cool. Uh, so I didn't know, like, Forgiven, for example, which is the song that I sing at the end of Act One, which is what I auditioned with. I didn't know that song. Um, so I really kind of only knew that the hits that were, like, really being played nonstop on the mm-hmm. radio. But yeah. I did love them. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So it was interesting to me how in the show— it, it, it never felt like a song was out of place. I recognized. Ooh, I love that. I recognized that. Okay, I've heard the song before, mm-hmm. but it's it was a natural progression of the story, mm-hmm. right? It it didn't feel contrived. That's in, so good. In any way, and I especially love how ironic makes fun of itself. I know, That's, right? <laughs> so good. So good. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
But then when all of a sudden, like I tried not to read anything about it before I saw it. And I went in and, and I was, and I said, oh, okay, Elizabeth. All right. So Mary Jane, wait, is that when Alanis is calling? Oh, oh, this isn't a show about Alanis. <laughs> yeah, totally. Okay, cool. Let me reset, right? Yep. Yeah. And so I'm watching you and just watching this character that's perfectly put together, like, was it Westchester or Connecticut? Connecticut it's, mom. It's vaguely Connecticut. Yeah, yes. yeah Connecticut, yep. Connecticut mm-hmm. mom, perfect yep. family. Just, just start and begin to crumble. Mm-hmm. And I feel like why part of the show has immediately gotten a fan base is because due to a lot of the subject matter, which which covers what sexual assault and sexuality and opioid addiction and basically just kind of feeling like you don't belong, mm-hmm. you have to keep up appearances. Mm-hmm. There's something to speak to everyone's fears. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, because every human being is suffering in some way every day, right? I mean, whether it's something tiny or something massive that you're just like getting through, you know, but everyone has something. And so I think that this show really it speaks to that truth. Well, yeah, I, I agree. It, there is a truth. There's a truth for everybody. And when, gosh, at the end of it, and you're doing, and you're taking your bow, and I can just, I'm looking at your face in curtain call, and you are drained. <laughs> you're like, girl, you look tired. I was like, I was like, she went there. She, <laughs> like, you go there to this. Your character is is addicted to opioids. Yeah. And you go to this place every eight times eight times a week. Mm-hmm. And I walked out of there talk. I was like, how how do you do that? <laughs> <laughs> How do you do that and not go insane in real life? Yeah. It's, I mean, I think a lot of, there's a lot of reasons how I stay sane. Um, one is that, very gratefully, the show is redemptive, right? It ends in a place where you feel like, okay, people survive. People go through a lot of shit and come out Okay. I mean, sometimes it's really messy and really ugly, but like that's actually what living truthfully is going to be, no matter how perfect you think someone's life is. Like there's crap going on, you know? So I think you end in this place of recognizing that, which somehow feels hopeful. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm also very actively aware. I mean, I've been in therapy for like over a decade. Like I'm someone who's very into my own personal like, wellness, you know, in air quotes. Um, And so I guess from the get-go, I was very clear of like, even in rehearsal, like if I'm doing a scene, the second we're done, like, boom, I'm back to being Elizabeth. Like you can't stay in this because that's not going to be a fun place to live or for anyone to be around you, you know? Yeah. Um, So I just got used to rehearsing it that way. And so even now, like there's some scenes that are really deep emotionally, like as soon as I come off and I run into the wings, I just literally like do a crazy dance and shake it off and like try and be silly to kind of reset. I I would feel self-conscious, but I think that's something that I have to get over really quickly. Yeah, like just going off and just, you know, shaking, shaking I mean, I'm, I like make a r- silly thing about it because right. we're all in it together also. Like all, yeah. everyone in the show is like on the journey, you know? And it is a journey. And gosh, the whole cast, the whole cast is so... So good. Aren't they incredible? I'm just like, 
who are you people? Uh, <laughs> I, it, it's, yeah, it's, I feel very humbled to like be leading this ensemble because yeah. they're so, so good. When, when you first saw the whole script, I mean, read through the whole script, I mean, what, I, I of course saw the finished product, but how much of it, was it always as direct of like, we're going to talk about rape and we're going to talk about white privilege and we're mm. going to say these words and we're going to make the audience uncomfortable and bring them back? I think yes. I mean, it has evolved, but you know, I think like Diablo's writing style is so unapologetic in that way. I think she's really expert at sort of the dark comedy of like taking the things that make us feel uncomfy and allowing us to be able to cry and laugh at them. Mm -hmm. So I think that it's always had that element to it. Um, you know, it's definitely evolved and had finesse and fine tuning and, um, a lot of work has been put into how is it impacting people? How does it fall in people's ears? You know, how does this go? But mm -hmm. um, I would say that those qualities of it have always been there. That's that's great. And when you first, when all the cast came together, when you were all in the room for the same time, was it was it awkward to start working through any of these scenes at all? I mean, because there's some intimate stuff. And I know Claire Warden mm -hmm. Is one of the first intimacy directors yeah. that's on Broadway. Period. But she's involved with this show. Like, how how was the subject matter first talked about as a cast? Because you have to become a family. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, Diane is so remarkable in her ability to, I think, bring a company together. I think it's one of her greatest strengths as a director. So, a couple things like. And maybe you've heard other actors who've worked with her before, but she gives you an assignment like the first week of rehearsal where you bring in a character presentation. Really? Yeah. So it's like an acting school exercise, which I love that shit. So I was like, I'm so here for this. Um, some people <laughs> I think are like, are you kidding? But I'm, I'm like, I love it. Um, and so that allowed each of us to bring in, you know, a piece of ourselves, I think. So that was like a great, and, and how... It's also an awesome way for people who don't maybe have spoken lines in the show mm -hmm. to, you get to know them more quickly in that way because you you see them as an artist individually doing something as opposed to in an ensemble. Um, so that was kind of step one. And then step two is that we all were assigned research projects. So like any anything that is covered in the show or anything that you felt comes up in the show for you, um, you were allowed to like, invited to sign up and then like one afternoon a day, you know, a week or whatever, everyone would like give their presentation. So, you know, like I did mine on transracial adoption and other people did theirs on opioid addiction or colorism, um, you know, all, all the things that happen in the show people talk about. And then that would open up the dialogue for the cast. Mm -hmm. So I think we really allowed room for discomfort and questioning. Um, and there were definitely moments along the way of like, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't realize that. Or actually, you know, hey, when you say that, that's a little, that's kind of offensive how that comes off. You know, so hmm. uh, I've never been in a cast that was so um, just able to put that out there and then navigate through it. Goodness. Yeah, I can imagine. Statistically, like as a dad now, I'm, what is it? It's like one in four 
kids has something bad, like sex, sexually assaulted in some way before Ugh. they're 18. And like one in three women is sexually assaulted in some form or another yeah. at any point in their lives. So like, like you're sitting in a room and I mean, I'm looking at the cast, right? I'm thinking of this mm-hmm. and I'm like one third or a quarter of this cast has got their own trauma that they've dealt with right. or are still dealing with. Right, right. And that to be able to just go there every night for me is, is mind blowing. It's so impressive. Well, thanks. I mean, I feel so lucky. Like, the theater lets you do that, right? I yeah. feel like like so many other jobs, you do. You just have to be like, I'm fine. Because <laughs> I don't want to make anyone else around me uncomfortable by actually saying what's going on with me, right? Right. But I feel like it's it's a beautiful thing that I think in the theater you can be like, my life is cray-cray right now, so I'm going to be cray-cray, so just help me out. Yeah. Well, you're... You bring it in. You bring you, like Elizabeth comes on stage with you a little bit. Yeah. That's just, it has to. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Obviously it has to. But I mean, we've been talking about the, the the sexual abuse aspect of this, but there's also, you know, adoption and coming to terms with that. And not only adoption, but transracial adoption. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because your adopted daughter is a person of color. Right. And oh, the the that's being dealt with. And she is also bisexual. Right. And dealing with discovering that. And there are so many layers that just get peeled back and peeled back. And I, I feel like all of this is, I mean, yeah, it took, what, a year and a half to bring it to Broadway for good mm-hmm, reason. Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. this, you got to shape all this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my goodness. What, what, so what changed between, between Boston and here? Like, how was it different then? Um. I mean, in so, in so many ways, it's exactly the same. But I think, I don't think it was as clear. Like, my character is a survivor of sexual assault. And I think that, it, for me, as my actor backstory, that is a large part of what contributed to opioids being quite addictive to my character. Mm-hmm. Because um, in research that I did... It, um, I just, I read many articles, one that's coming to mind from the Times about a doctor that was working with um, people in recovery in Iowa, actually. And that she said, like, I don't know, almost every patient that she had was a survivor of either sexual assault or sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, they're not, you know, it's, it's not as if everyone that it has become addicted to opioids, it has suffered that. But it does seem like it's not uncommon. And um, and so I think that then that contributes to then when that element enters the story through her children's lives, mm-hmm. it's very triggering for her. And I don't know that that was necessarily clear in Cambridge that I don't know that the audience realized that I was a survivor of sexual assault even though that's what I was playing. But I don't know that oh. that was, I don't know that, that that was as clear. And so I think like that's something that they worked to bring to the forefront a bit more. Oh, yeah. Like you legit just have a whole monologue about that now. Yeah. Yeah. I, oh, gosh, that that completely would have been missing. Yeah. It, and it's something, you know, it was like that was sort of, it was in the show in a different way in one of the labs. And then it got kind of removed and moved around and they tried to, have it be in there in a more subtle way, I think, in the show in Cambridge. And so I think it's, they kind of found it their way back to an earlier version in some ways. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so things like that, I think, got finessed with, like, the storyline of, like, really, really just tightening. Same thing with, like, the character Bella, who is the character that um, suffers sexual assault within the story. And I think it gave her more of a voice, I think. In, in Cambridge, she was not as not as much of an active part of the story. Like, mm-hmm. it, like the things where people were talking about her and, it, you know, things had happened to her, but she wasn't as actively in the storyline, which I think they quickly realized, like, oh, that's not, that's not good. We need her to have a voice. Mm-hmm. And then she gets, Catherine Gallagher gets one of the two original songs. No, only one original song. Oh, I thought you had an original song. I do. There's two original songs in the show, but yes. she sings one, I sing one. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, Okay, yeah. yeah. Yeah, she gets one of the two. You get yeah, the other one. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, she's oh, gosh, so predator. fantastic. Oh, just. I know. It's really creepy, oh, isn't it? It is. It is. And I, yeah, I guess Claire Warden was active on that rehearsal, those rehearsal days. Yeah, um, yeah. Mm, yeah, that is, it's a very powerful song. I'm not going to spoil it for anybody who hasn't seen it, but... Um, it, it it left me... I mean, the show, like you said, it's very redeeming. It's redemptive for your character. Mm-hmm. I guess generally, as a member of society, it leaves me feeling a little bit generally uncomfortable. Mm. In, in, And I think that's probably on purpose in that yeah. your, your son, am I allowed to say this? He just kind of gets away with it. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And that's messed up. Mm-hmm. But it happens every day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I hate that. <laughs> yeah. So, oh gosh. Um, yeah, so I left and I kind of felt icky. I loved it. Loved the show. Lo- you know, of course, I'm happy that we watched this character that we're following throughout the story get back to a better place. But at the end, I was like, oh, shit. That's, <laughs> look, that, that really, like, it, sit, it sits with me. It still does. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, I think, yeah, I don't know that I, I, actively look at it like that but i mean that is a that is one way of looking at it and yeah i mean i think i think intentionally they left it they left a lot of the story um somewhat unresolved because you know you can't tie this stuff up in a bow Mm -mm. like you know but you know it's like i think it feels to me it feels like okay there's progress in that like her story is getting heard there is a trial actually happening because those are things that like usually don't happen. Mm-hmm. You know, particularly if the woman is not someone that comes from means, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's, it's really, it's, it's complicated. Yeah. Do you, do you get any sort of different, I mean, I'm sure the stage door feedback is just all over the place. Like I was saying, there's the, the different topics, there's sexuality and assault and being a survivor. Like, do you, have you had people come up to you and, Tell you stories at the stage door at all? Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah. Oh. On on all of the above, you know, like yeah. uh, people saying, "I'm a survivor," and thank you for telling my story. Um, people saying, "I'm I'm a recovering addict," and you know that scene on the couch is the most accurate oh, wow. portrayal I've ever seen of what it feels like to be dealing with that, or a transracial family saying like oh, this is my mom, I'm adopted, like, we've never seen a story about us. And some of those lines were exactly what I've heard before. And, you know, so it's it's very different than the average musicale at the stage door. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Gosh, I, is, that, is that hard to leave behind, too? Because you leave, you leave Mary Jane 
inside the theater. Mm. But when you're going outside, you are you. Mm-hmm. You're signing playbills. You're doing your thing. And then you have someone come up and they're like, oh, yeah, this, these bad things happened to me. Thank you, thank you. Like, does that weigh on you at all? Yeah, we had a lot of conversations about that um, in rehearsal because we we knew from doing it in Cambridge that that, like, was a small um, example probably of what we would experience when we brought the show in. And... Um, yeah, I mean it it does. It's I feel grateful that people feel like they can share that mm-hmm. with me. So th- I guess I feel very moved by that. I haven't had anyone come up to me saying I don't know what to do. I'm in I need help. You know, and I think like that that would sit with me in a much heavier place, but I I you know, I I am not an expert, so I would, you know, certainly do what I could to point them to someone who could actually give them assistance. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it is, but it's a, I mean, that's the world we live in. It's really sad. You know, I mean, there's so much beauty in the world too. Like that's the thing is like, there's so many people who are working really hard to be helpful, Mm -hmm. but yeah, it's, it's painful. I think when we really look at the world and the things that are like, we're doing to ourselves. Part of what I, I hope people listening, and if you've been listening for a long time, you hear me talk about this all the time, is mental health. Mm-hmm. Like that's one of my focuses on this podcast is I started think, seeing a therapist really seriously like a year and a half ago. Mm-hmm. And it's completely changed me. And it's contained my relationships and how I can talk with relative strangers and still have a good conversation and be vulnerable and not assume the worst, that they're thinking the worst about me, right? Right, yeah. And the, the, thing, the thing for me is that I just want people to be okay being honest mm-hmm. and talking about it. Because I've heard, I mean, and, and actually it was Tanya Pinkins who said that theater is good uh, to allow people to practice empathy. Mm-hmm. Because you don't get to practice that. Like your brain does not form those connections unless you're in the moment. So you go to theater and you see that and your brain's like, okay, yeah, okay, I can see that modeled for me now. Mm-hmm. And that's great, right? Mm-hmm. So for me, it's it's seeing people come to terms with addiction, with their need for for validation, with their need. Like your character is coping. Mm-hmm. It's an unhealthy coping mechanism. Correct. Yeah. And so being able to see, yes, that this is going to be detrimental or, hey, if I don't talk about this, then I'm going to go worse. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you, you thank you for bringing up, you've been seeing a therapist for a decade, right? Yeah. Like, I love her. <laughs> She's so good. <laughs> is it the same lady? Yeah. Wow. I know. I got a good one. Yeah. So I, th- <laughs> I don't think... I actually have a theory that I don't think you can be really successful on Broadway unless you are in therapy. Because <laughs> you need to be able to just <laughs> to just talk about how you really feel yeah. and 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 be vulnerable or be okay knowing that not everyone's gonna like you and being vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you really know yourself, then I think you can get out of your own way to create a, a character that's not you. Right? Because right. you know, like, oh well, I know I I'm gonna look at this this way, or I'm gonna feel this way about these things, but that's me. Okay. So let me move aside and see what this character would do. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, 
I've known many people who have confided in me, like more than I want to admit that they've had like past traumas and whatnot. And and like, why, you know, can you talk about it? Why don't you just talk about it? Like, no, no, I just, you know, I don't, I don't really feel comfortable. I'm like, mm-hmm. but you can tell me, but you can't tell someone who's been trained to deal with this, or you can't tell like somebody who could really make a difference. Like, now that I, I mean, t- telling me is a first step, I guess. Yeah. But it's it's baffling to me how much this exists and it's, how uncomfortable people are. I mean, I think like a really big piece of me understanding this character is my dad who fought in Vietnam and and certainly suffers PTSD even though he is like a highly successful wonderful person great dad like you know there are many people who fought in Vietnam who really didn't come back and like become the person that he was able to become because their trauma was like just overcame them mm-hmm. right um and so i think you know especially for that generation they're like i'm fine Oh, yeah. But, like, he's not, you know? In a lot of ways, like, he's not. And I think I I see in him and through my own therapy and, you know, whatever, and, like, just aging and, like, me kind of understanding his humanity a bit more. It's, like, I see that, like, how hard it is to ask for help or to admit that you're maybe not okay. And it's so deep. It's so deep that you don't even see it. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's taken me as long as it did, because that behavior was modeled to me from my parents. Right, right. And all the people that were around me when I was a young child, when things went bad, you just said, you're fine. You're right. fine. Get over it. Yeah. And it, yeah, it makes all the difference just to say, you know what? I'm just not feeling good today. I'm going to sit in this. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to acknowledge it. And okay, now that I've said that, I even feel better immediately. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's, oh, God, people, go to therapy. Come on. I say that so much. Oh, seriously. <laughs> it, it is such a great investment, though. It really is. I mean, not only for understanding yourself, but for understanding the people in your life. Oh, yeah. Right? It, yeah. it just makes me be more compassionate to them. Like, You know what like, one of my breakthroughs was? Was uh, realizing that there aren't really breakthroughs. In, in that, <laughs> you'll just I, always be a mess. Well, yes, no. <laughs> yes. It's not. But yeah. It's not about curing. Well, there's no like eureka moments. Well, sometimes there are. You're not gonna be fixed. You're not gonna be fixed. There's no yeah. like. All right, in the movies or TV, you just go and you're like, all right, I talked to a couple. I got therapists a couple times, and now I'm cool. I'm cool. Like, yeah. No, this, especially if you start later in life, it takes a long time to undo yeah. what is what is your hardcore wiring. Right. And oh gosh, oh, I could go on and on about this, but this isn't no, a therapy podcast. I mean, podcast. no, but I did say to my therapist, like I don't know, a few years in, I was like, "Should I be concerned about myself? Like, I feel like I expected to be here like a couple years max, you know." <laughs> and, and she was like, "You know, there's kind of two types of of people that seek out therapy. Like, some people are really experiencing something very specific. They're, they're getting divorced. They're having trouble conceiving. They're they lost a parent. You know, something that you're mm-hmm. really like. I need to talk to someone about this specific moment." And then they kind of are done with that and they're ready to like not be in therapy anymore. And then there are other people who are more, it sounds like you and I, on like the <laughs> lifelong journey of curiosity about just continuing to maintain that part of our, our you know, mental health and, and understanding ourselves and the world around us in a perhaps deeper way than, mm-hmm. than the average bear. But Yeah, and it shows it's really... So just, I'm not crazy, everyone, okay? <laughs> okay, just so you know. 
<laughs> if you listen to past interviews on this podcast, I go here with so many people because um, everybody loves talking about it. I know. And then for the people who love to talk about it, it's such a— it's I can a, keep going. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I have a Patreon account, and uh, everybody gets to send in questions if they have any. Great. And so I got a question for you from one of my patrons. Oh, it's kind of fun. Okay. It's just a very simple question. Is Diana in Next to Normal a dream role? Oh my God. Um, yeah, of course. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I am a huge fan of Tom Kitt. So um, I just, I, I think he's the greatest. Um, and I I love that score. And, and such an awesome role that is really complex. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Although I wouldn't want to like do it back to back with this. I would need, I, I think I need to do like a, a farce or something after this. Something that's really Yeah, this is heavy. Different. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I I agree. You, you gotta you gotta at least switch it up a little bit. Yeah. Um, but so we touched on this at the beginning, but uh, you originally went into performing just to like be a concert soloist and do more singing, Opera, right? Opera. To be clear, yeah, yes. yeah. And yeah. but now, um, obviously, you are very successful as an actress and uh, singer on on the Broadway stage. But um, in terms of your solo kind of thing, do you, you do cabarets? Yeah. I do. Yeah. yeah. And I love it. I mean, it's a completely different art form. It, I mean, not not completely different, but um, like to creating a woman show is like the, scary, um, but thrilling. Um, and it does, to me, it feels like a throwback to like my college days or like my, my roots in the beginning of this where it's like more about the music mm-hmm. um, than when you're doing a musical where I would really put the acting first. I feel like when you're doing a musical, like the acting has to influence how you're singing. Yes. Um, whereas like when you're doing a cabaret, I think like people are in some ways coming to hear you sing. So the the music and the choices you're making or the way you put songs together is just as important as like how you're acting through the songs. Do you really enjoy doing cabarets or is it more of like a career continuation move? No, I like it. Do you? Yeah, because I because I love singing so much. Like it's it's really fun, and it's fun to collaborate with, you know, other musicians and music directors to like come up with a cool arrangement of something. And um, yeah, like one of my dreams, I'm just putting it out there, is to do the Lincoln Center Songbook series at the Jazz at Lincoln Center. Oh, that'll be sing, sweet. With, like yeah. overlooking Columbus Circle. I'm just putting it out there. I want to do it. <laughs> Okay, so to wrap up this episode here, I have three standard closing questions that I ask everybody. Okay. The first one, very simply, is what motivates you? Mm. Storytelling. I, I mean, I think as as an actor, it is. It's. I'm. I am genuinely curious about humanity and the world around me, mm-hmm. and I feel like it's a really special way to allow us to see the world and digest it in a way that's like not so painful through theater. You know, like the art, art allows us to look at the world in a way that is one step removed if from just watching the news, for example. Yeah. Um, and so I guess it's sort of, you know, storytelling sort of activism through art is really what's motivating me in this moment anyway. Okay. And the second question is, what advice would you give to your younger self and younger people listening now starting out down a similar path? I mean, I asked, I, I, my funny question is, you're not fat. Um, because I feel like so many actresses, you know, and so many young people are, are like, 
so stressed about that. And it was something that I was really stressed about. Really? Like, oh God, yeah. Because, you know, it just, you know, the industry is is mean. And I do think it's getting better. I think it's so much better than it was, but it still exists, you know. Um, and so I would just say, hey, hey girl, you look great. Calm down. Um, but then my, my other advice is just that um, be patient. Like, you know, what's, what's for you is going to come to you and it might not be in the time that you're expecting it, but it's, it's all going to happen. All right. And then the final question, this is the hardest one. If you could only see one show for the rest of your life, but you can see it as many times as you want, Ooh. what would you see? Oh, my God. Oh, geez. That's really tough. Um, maybe Merrily We Roll Along. Ooh. Because, you know, there's, it's like you got to figure it out. It would, I would keep going. What is the puzzle? How can I make this be something that everyone agrees works? <laughs> you know? <laughs> you should write some fan fiction and continue it. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. And I, I mean, I just, obviously, anything Sondheim is amazing. Yeah. So. All right. Yeah. So we can find you on Instagram at el.stans. Elstans. Elstans. And your uh, Twitter account's gone. I can find it. I don't have Twitter. I don't uh, have Facebook, and I don't have Twitter. Well, I don't blame you for not having Facebook. I haven't checked Facebook in a long time. Yeah, because we're, we're cool, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah. Totally, totally. Um, so, Twitter is like too much for me. It's mean. It, well, I yeah, maybe that's part of it. But I just, it, I was like, it's I can't, I can barely keep up with Instagram. So I just was like, I got to pick one. Yeah. And I like pictures. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and of course, go see Jagged Little Pill playing at the Broadhurst Theater. Go to jaggedlittlepill.com to get your tickets and read Elizabeth's bio and everything else. It's such a good show. Everyone go see it. You can get more of me at thetheaterpodcast.com. Show your support. Get your questions in for future guests via thetheaterpodcast.com slash Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Find me on Instagram and Twitter at theater underscore podcast. Please leave a rating, leave a review. Turn to that person next to you right five now. Five stars. Yeah, five stars. Turn to that person next to you and say, hey, I'm listening to a podcast. You should listen too. This is edited by Matthew Hendershot. Thank you to Jukebox the Ghost for the music. And of course, Elizabeth Stanley. Thank you. This has been so much fun. Thank you. Go to therapy. <laughs> <laughs> Take a deep breath, make the world a little colorful. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.